Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded on June 1st, 2018, here in Seoul, Korea. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and this week I am joined in the studio by former North Korean diplomat Taeyong Ho. Listeners, you can download or subscribe to our podcast not only at iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who, le- who reviews our podcast uh, at iTunes or other platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership may grow. Now, our very special in-studio guest today is Mr. Taeyong Ho. Taeyong Ho was the former Deputy Chief of Mission at the DPRK Embassy in London from 2006. In 2016, his first son was recalled to Pyongyang, but instead, Mr. Taeyong took his wife and two sons to Seoul. He recently released a book about his experiences and about North Korea's leadership. Can I ask you, first of all, about the title of your book? We at NK News have translated the title in English as Cipher of the Third Floor Secretariat. But Subin Kim of the BBC has uh, called it the code of the third floor secretary office. And the New York Times has cryptography from the third floor secretariat. Which title do you prefer as the translation? And what does the title actually mean? I'm not actually quite sure myself which title would be the appropriate. Uh, But the concept of my book is that when I receive instructions from three-storied secretariat, all the instructions were coded. That's why even though uh, intelligence services uh, listen it or try to uh, understand that it was almost impossible. That's why I think maybe Cypher from three-storied secretariat is the most, you know, appropriate translation. Okay, what is exactly, what is the third floor secretariat? What is the significance or the function of it? Good question. Before the Chung Yong, the advisor uh, of uh, Blue House of South Korea, visited North Korea uh, on, third, on 5th of March, this uh, a three-storied secretariat office was never opened to foreigners uh-huh. or even to South Koreans. It is the place where Kim Jong-il and after Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un worked. And in North Korea, even the highest leadership cannot have that kind of access to that uh, office building. This is a kind of a place which was not even open to North Korean society. To among North Korean elites, uh, that office building was just uh, the called three-storied secretariat, and that at that time meant that the office where Kim Jong-un worked. Okay, so it's the, the personal working space of Kim Jong-un and before him Kim Jong-il. Yes, that's right. Did Kim Il-sung also use it? No, no. Maybe Kim Il-sung himself did not quite understand the existence of that building and that team. Now, if I understand correctly, uh, you received the codes from that secretariat during the time of the visit by Kim Jong-un's older half-brother Kim Jong-chol to to London. Actually, not half-brother, his full brother Kim Jong-chol to London. Tell us a little bit about that visit and that, that concert. I had a very uh, interesting and coded a telephone call directly from Pyongyang, and they asked me to read my emails and gave a very specific 
uh, coded instructions how to open it. Mm. And when I opened it, I was surprised to read that, that uh, I had to buy uh, six tickets of Eric Clipton right. in Elbert, you know, the hall in London. Did you know who Eric Clapton was at that time? Yes, because I was engaged in facilitating Eric Clapton's visit to Pyongyang in 2007 and 2008 Okay. Uh, during my service in London and also during my service as Deputy General Director of uh, European Department. So I knew uh, very well what that meant. Have you spent any time directly with uh, Kim Jong-un? No, no. I just uh, saw him in a distance because... As a diplomat, I took part in a lot of diplomatic ceremonies and activities together with Kim Jong-un, but I never talked to him or I never listened uh, to him directly. I just, you know, uh, saw him in a long distance, so I didn't have that kind of, you know, experience. Okay. Well, what have you been able to observe or learn indirectly about his character? He is a very intelligent and uh, very hot-tempered, but smart, uh, but merciless. So let's talk about your own personal story. What were you doing before you were stationed in London in 2006? Oh, I worked as a Deputy General Director of European Department of North Korean Foreign Ministry. I stationed in Denmark and Sweden, and I uh, served uh, two terms in London. The first one was... 2004 to 2008, and second one was from 2013 until 2016. Now, I've heard that it's very difficult or unusual for a North Korean diplomat to live overseas with his family, especially with his children, because it increases the risk of a family group defection, that normally the family is made to stay back in North Korea, almost like a kind of collateral or hostages, if you will. But this is exactly what you did. You were able to live overseas with your family, and indeed your whole family did defect. So how were you able to earn the trust of the North Korean government to let you take your wife and children abroad? I think uh, I was uh, very lucky because when I posted to London, I had to uh, leave my uh, first son in Pyongyang because he was a university student at that time, and uh, he was not allowed to accompany his parents to London. But in February of 2014, all of a sudden, Kim Jong-un changed his mind and he decided to let the university uh, students to be allowed to accompany the, uh, their parents to foreign countries because Kim Jong-un's original intention was to send North Korean students to European and Western countries for a better education. But North Korea faced a lot of difficulties because, you know, uh, the students have to pass English examinations. You have to uh, submit all your documentations through Internet and be interviewed. So all these bureaucratic systems actually made it impossible for North Korean students to go uh, overseas. So the only possible way was to let the children of uh, diplomats or the North Korean people who are working abroad be allowed to be accompanied with their parents so that they can go to Western universities. So 
My son was just one of them. Okay, so there are other diplomats who are allowed to live with their right. families too. All right. Yes. Uh, what is it like to live and work as a diplomat representing the DPRK overseas? Uh, what were some of the most difficult parts of your job? As far as I was concerned, uh, North Korea uh, maintained very uh, small embassy in London, but the workload was great because there were only... Uh, three professional diplomats in the embassy, but a North Korean embassy in London was accredited to not only to United Kingdom, but European Union, Belgium, Luxembourg, Ireland. So one diplomat has to be uh, responsible for a certain country. So as far as I am concerned, I was in charge of all relations between North Korea and United Kingdom, no matter whether it is the political issues or cultural or even defense issues. You mentioned in your book that meeting friendly South Korean diplomats overseas can be very stressful and burdensome to a North Korean diplomat. Can you talk about that? Oh, of course, because if uh, we compare uh, the size between North and South Korean embassies in London. South Korean embassy is big. They have huge diplomatic, you know, the professional teams. But we are only three in London. And South Korean embassy was rich. So they have a lot of cultural functions, diplomatic activities, but we are not. So it can be very easily compared by British between North and the South in yeah. diplomatic community. If you were at a uh, an event and you met a South Korean diplomat who spoke to you, uh, was that a, a difficult position for you? It was not a difficult position. We just exchanged, you know, the greetings like uh, hello, and mm-hmm. but uh, that's the end because I always try to avoid uh, meeting with South Korean diplomats because whenever I uh, met them, I felt a kind of, you know, a kind of feeling Mm -hmm. that I was just, you know, looked down upon by the others, you know. So uh, I had a kind of, you know, inferior feeling whenever I met South Korean diplomat. Would you also have to write a report after meeting a South Korean diplomat back to Pyongyang saying, you know, I met Mr. Lee somebody and we spoke about this and that did you have to write these kind of reports not all the times but if we have some serious uh, talk on nuclear issues or inter-korean issues or whatever then i have to uh, write it back to pyongyang i've heard from several north koreans that north koreans living in north korea if they meet a foreigner they have any interaction with the foreigner uh, they must write a report about that, about that conversation. Yes, Was that sure. also the same for yeah. you living in England? So if you yeah. met uh, an English person um, from the Juche study group, for example, you'd have to write a report about that experience? Sure. Absolutely. It is uh, just a kind of, you know, the duty for all North Koreans, whether you are a diplomat or a tourist guide. In North Korea, a tourist guide has to write a report on the foreign uh, tourists uh, every day after the work. And how detailed are these reports, do you know? It depends. You know, some people write a very detailed report, but if uh, you write a very too short report, then you must you, you would be asked by uh, the security officer to write it again. 
what's the relationship between North Korean diplomats and the North Korean security services? Was there somebody in London from the State Security Agency? No, there is no any security agency uh, in London. Our embassy in London were uh, the security agency in Berlin uh, covered uh, our embassy in London. And I was the party secretary of our embassy, so I had to report uh, almost every day or every other day to the security agency office in Berlin about, you see, my friends, what's going on in the embassy, you know, if there is any unusual things or whatever. So this is a kind of, you know, a regular cycle of the work. North Korea uh, maintains a kind of, you know, uh, surveillance system uh, which actually eyeing each other. I was not the only one to report to him, but from time to time he phoned to my colleagues to do double-checking. Even though we were three in London, uh, there was no any trust, you know, the among us. Uh, we didn't know uh, who is reporting what. And if the security agency office in Berlin believed that I was not in usual or I was not a loyal, then he had the power to make my uh, recall back to yeah. Pyongyang. For instance, a not good relation with the security agencies, then, you know, you would be in trouble. So that's why every North Korea always try to maintain good relationship with security officers. Right. And how, how do you do that? Do you sometimes send a gift from London or just be very friendly on the phone or do you have dinner just with him sometimes? Just friendly on the phone. Okay. Did you ever meet him in person? Yes. He traveled to London, I think, once or twice a year. Ah, to check and visit yes, and, and surveil. Right. Yeah. Yes. So... To what extent does the power of the state security agency diminish when overseas? Or is it the same, just the same as in uh, in North Korea? In North Korea, the power of the security agency is much, much stronger because they have more personnel there. They have all system of taping, you know, the people's talk. That's why the security agency surveillance system overseas are very weak compared with their system back in North Korea. So your embassies in London would not have been recorded? Your conversations were no. not? Hmm, interesting. When did you last live in the DPRK for an extended period of time? I left for my post to London in April of uh, 2013, but I visited North Korea again in February of 2014. So my, and I stayed there around one month. So my last visit to Pyongyang was the April of 2014. A little bit more than two years before you defected. Yes. Is there a danger that uh, when you speak about North Korea, your knowledge or of the circumstances and the system under Kim Jong-un might be out of date? I'm not quite sure yet. To me, everything is unchanged. The system is still there. The people... And my colleagues are still are at the post, so I don't have that kind of fear. So briefly, could you tell us about what led to your decision to switch teams from North Korea to South Korea? Was that a long decision process or was there a proverbial last straw that broke the camel's back? Of course, it's a kind of, you know, long uh, evolution uh, process. As a diplomat, 
I spent uh, more than 12 years in abroad as a North Korean diplomat who experienced all these different uh, political systems and the level of democracy and human rights in Western countries. How can a North Korean diplomat believe in the North Korean system? So, but, you know, I have my family and relatives back in North Korea. So that kind of decision cannot be easily made. Yeah, but as I as I said, uh, my son was in London University in 2016. And in March of 2016, a big incident happened in North Korean history. Twelve North Korean waitresses working in China defected to South Korea collectively. Mm-hmm. And that incident really shocked the whole North Korean system. So Kim Jong-un decided to recall the university children of North Korean diplomats. All of them. All of them. And my son was asked to be back no later than the end of July. It was a great frustration to me and to my son. And uh, that made me very uh, angry because as a father, if I do not even protect the right of my son's education if I do not even exercise the right of the father, I do not believe that there is a hope in North Korean system. So I decided, you know, to say goodbye to that system, which I served for more than 30 years. Now, you mentioned that uh, group defection of North Korean waitresses from a restaurant in China. That's still an ongoing controversial issue now, right. isn't it? Yes. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've heard some information that maybe they were not completely voluntary in their right. decision. Yes. Do you have any opinion about that? I do not have any you know, information. I haven't met them. So I really do not know what exactly happened uh, between the manager of that group and the rest of the young, you know, the ladies, whether it is voluntary or, you know, planned and forced ones. Okay. How is life for you now in South Korea? Uh, Apart from writing your book, what's been keeping you busy since you came here? Oh, I make a lot of uh, lectures from time to time, I meet uh, the medias like today, yes. and I try to tell the true picture of North Korean system and the Kim Jong-un so that the people here and the rest of the world should not be fooled by the North Korea's charm offensive. Yeah, we'll come back to that issue of being fooled later on uh, in this interview. You recently quit working for the Institute for National Security Strategy, a think tank under the National Intelligence Service, which is South Korea's equivalent of the CIA. Uh, Why did you quit that? You know, I made a lecture in Parliament about uh, North Korea's nuclear and missile strategy. And on 16th of May, North Korea denounced my lecture in the Parliament. And they said that, you see, I tried to break the current reconciliation process of inter-Korean relations. On 19th of May, North Korea again demanded South Korean side that if South Korean side did not take any actions against me, then North Korea will not go on the inter-Korean governmental dialogue. So I was just, you know, 
in between north and south for the government level the dialogue so if i continue to stay in inss then i really at that time thought that there would be no hope for inter korean uh, the dialogue so i decided to give away to a uh, south korean government to continue inter korean dialogue with the uh, north so after i quit uh, inss finally i don't know whether my quit actually opened the door but finally north korea agreed to have dialogue and kim jong un had a second summit with president moon jae in right so you chose voluntarily to to resign from your position in order to hopefully save the dialogue process yes okay uh, so what do you hope now for the people of north korea it is very uh, sad for north korean people to have that kind of system for almost 70 years now in northeast asia south korea of course economic well-being democracy even in china you know the people enjoy a certain level of freedom and they act at least chinese have a freedom of movement and freedom of uh, access to informations but in north korea people do not have that a uh, very important freedom element so of course it's not very easy task but north korean people i think someday should stand up to change their lives and the systems for their own sake so a kind of a internal system change right. from the bottom up from the bottom up so how can people organizations and governments outside north korea help to achieve that goal north korean people should be educated and enlightened uh because the reason of the velvet revolution in uh former uh socialist countries in eastern europe was possible because the people there had a certain level of freedom and access to informations the reason of arab spring was uh, because the arab world also had at that time had a certain level of access to information so for that kind of people's uprising the people living in that country uh, should be educated you know uh, for any kind of possible people's uprising but in north korea the people are just uh, isolated and separated from outside of the world so i think the world should help North Korean defective like North Korean defective organizations uh, to disseminate a tailor-made informations back to North Korea so that North Korean people should know what's going on in the world and should compare uh, their lives with the rest of the world what you're talking about is not something that kim jong un wants how do we do what you're suggesting help the north korean people and at the same time carry out dialogue and and negotiations with the north korean government the first trouble i think if there are there are more you know the dialogues and the more channels of uh, exchanges corporations north korean people may have more opportunity to here and view for instance hundreds of north koreans visited pyeongchang olympics and i am sure that they must must be surprised to see all the achievements made by south koreans you know and inside north korea there are huge changes are taking place for instance the people's demand for 
the freedom is increasing. Capitalist uh, marketization is going on. And the people's uh, demand for South Korean cultural content is also increasing. So even though Kim Jong-un tries very hard to prevent the outside informations, but now this process cannot be you know, stopped. The best choice for Kim Jong-un and his family is to quit the leadership and let the North Korean people have their own right to choose. He should not continue to instruct. It's the way of the life North Korean people should do. Should he stay in North Korea or should he go live in exile somewhere? I think uh, he cannot stay in North Korea. The best option for him is to exile, yeah. Any suggestions where might be a nice place? Maybe uh, Switzerland. You know, he spent his childhood in uh, Switzerland and uh, maybe some neutral countries like Austria or Sweden or Sweden, Finland. Uh, These countries could be a very good option for him. Okay, let's talk a bit more about the North Korean system in general. Uh, How much or how little has the system changed under Kim Jong-un compared to his father? I think in the past six years, uh, North Korea has changed a lot. For instance, uh, as I have said, you know, the people's lifestyle has changed and the people's demand for outside information increased uh, dramatically and also uh, Kim Jong-un took a little bit different approach on the opening of the country, for instance, even though he continued to prevent outside information. But on the other hand, he needed foreign currency urgently. That's why he opened more doors to foreign tourism. Now he is building more special zones in Wonsan. So in general, the demand of North Korean populars for economic change and for the better life is increasing. So that's why North Korea is more materialized during Kim Jong-un's period than Kim Jong-il's uh, period. So people are becoming more materialistic, wanting, right, yes, wanting a better standard of living. Yes. Uh, what's the reason for the long-term survival of the, uh, the system in North Korea? North Korea has uh, built a very unique system. For instance, theoretically, uh, the communism advocates the equality, not only in economic factors, but in cultural and uh, social as well. That's why the theory of communism actually oppose a kind of dynasty political structure. So that's why in communist theory, all those uh, dictators like uh, Stalin, Mao Zedong or whoever did not even try to let his son continue his leadership because it is against communist theory. But North Korea is the first country where this kind of, you know, feudal system was installed by upholding communist theory. So the structure of North Korea actually does not confirm with the communist the ideology. And the second thing is that North Korea established a kind of a very unique personal cult system. So in North Korea, the leader of North Korea is not a, just a human being. He is just a god, flawless, you see, faultless god. So in North Korea, for instance, when 
you reach the age of three, all the children are forced to bow to the portraits of their leaders. There is only one state-owned TV channels. There are only party-sponsored newspapers. All the textbooks and the books the North Korean people read are monitored. It's a kind of system where the people's mind are controlled by the government leader 100%. The system like North Korea can only be in place by isolating the people from the rest of the world. Does that make it difficult for Kim Jong-un to make any real changes? Because if he does then he's kind of saying that his father was incorrect and maybe his father wasn't perfect or his grandfather wasn't perfect. That's right. So these days, I think many people are saying that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may take Chinese or Vietnam style of reform or openness, but that kind of miracle cannot happen in North Korea. For instance, what happened actually in China and Vietnam, they gave the three uh, freedoms to its own people. For instance, the first one, the Chinese and Vietnam communist parties gave the freedom of uh, free access to informations. In North Korea, that is impossible. If the people are given that kind of freedom, then next day, the North Korean system would be changed. The second freedom which uh, Chinese and Vietnam communists delivered was the freedom of movement. For instance, China... Vietnam people, they can go wherever they want. They can go to America, South Korea, no problem. But if North Korean system give that kind of freedom, then all the people would flee. And thirdly, Chinese and Vietnam communists gave the freedom of not joining the communist parties or political organization. So in China, if you are not a communist if you are not a member of Communist Party, it's okay. Yeah. But in North Korea, if you are not the member of Workers' Party of Korea, then you cannot improve or upgrade yourself. So these are three important freedoms which North Korea cannot give to its people. So that's why in North Korea, that kind of Vietnam-style or Chinese-style reformal openings cannot happen. But, okay, but in the last uh, 50, 10 or 15 years, we've seen the growth of a group of people in North Korea. You might call them the elites, but they're not the leadership. So it's not Kim Jong-un and his family, but uh, another kind of elites who are um, becoming powerful uh, in terms of money. And they are sometimes able to travel overseas on business trips to China. So they have an idea about outside information. They have access to material wealth. But they are important in, or are they important in keeping the system going? We call them Tonchu, you know, new bourgeoisies in North Korean system. Their role is very small. Influence of these Tonchus are very small and limited by now. But I think the more and more people learned the merit of, you know, this marketization and the money. Mm. So I think North Korea will change. What kind of effects does foreign tourism have on North Korea? When North Korea and people watch these foreign tourists, even though it is distance, yeah. they envy them and 
some North Korean, especially young generation, may think why they do not have that kind of freedom to go to the other countries, you see, for tourism, you know. So I think in the long run, may bring a change in the people's concept in North Korea. So you think that tourism should continue to North yes, Korea? Yes, should continue and more people should go and try to engage with the normal North Korean people. We talked a little bit before about ideological education and propaganda in North Korea. That's obviously very important for the regime stability. How does the regime maintain ideological purity of diplomats or other Koreans outside North Korea? In North Korea embassy, every Saturday is a called education day. So all the diplomats, the children and wives are all gathered in one room and from morning until afternoon uh, we study uh, Kim Jong-un's works, we study the instructions by the party. So this kind of normal ideological and educational cycle is going on. Yeah, so just like in North Korea, yes. keeping people busy through constant activity. Yes. Uh, I'd like to spend the last few minutes talking about uh, summits. We are recording this podcast just less than two weeks before the scheduled summit between U.S. President Trump and North Korean Chairman Kim, and almost one week after the second summit meeting between Presidents Moon and uh, Chairman Kim. What do you believe Kim Jong-un wants to achieve through these negotiations? First of all, Kim Jong-un wants to meet President Trump because so far Kim Jong-un was uh, depicted by American media and world media as a kind of evil. The American people in the world uh, as well hated him because Kim Jong-un not only developed a nuclear ICBM, but he almost killed Otto Wembeyer. Uh, so that's why his image is really bad. But if he meets with President Trump, shakes hands with him with a smile and shown to American public as a normal person, uh, he wants to he uh, change his image uh, of the evil. And on the other hand, back to North Korea, Kim Jong Un wants to be seen by North Korean people as a kind of of bright supreme leader who is a same level with yeah. President Trump, who is the leader of the superpower of the world. So North Korea is a small, small country, but Kim Jong-un all of a sudden, you know, can upgrade the level of North Korea to the same level of Great America by meeting President Trump at the same level. Oh, well, that's right. What is uh, Kim willing to offer in exchange to get what he wants? It is very clear Kim Jong-un wants to get nuclear power status, mm -hmm. uh, but not openly. So he wants to keep his nuclear weapons as much of, as possible through negotiations. Mm -hmm. So my concern is that if North Korea is wrapped by denuclearization paper and stayed as a nuclear state, that could be a very worst scenario which President Trump should avoid. You think that Kim will never give up his nuclear weapons? No, never, because that is his last resort. Uh, for instance, on 20th of April, Kim Jong-un convened party plenary meeting seven days before inter-Korean summit. And in that meeting, he told to North Korean leaders that to North Korea, the nuclear weapon 
is very strong, precious sword. Yeah, the sacred sword story. Yes. yes. And on the meantime, it is a very strong shield. So to him, it is sword and shield. And he said this just seven days before inter-Korean the summit. And North Korean media broadcast his speech to its own people. He is telling different story to the world, to South Korea, and to its own people, to North Korea. They also broadcast on the national media to all the citizens of North Korea about the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula being a goal. So there's a contradiction there, isn't there? That's right. I think uh, the denuclearization of Korean Peninsula is a kind of, you know, uh, the concept which is interpreted quite differently between North Korea and America and South Korea. North Korean's uh, argument of denuclearization of Korean Peninsula is no more introductions of deployment of nuclear weapons uh, by America on Korean Peninsula. And America should not continue to threat North Korea with its nuclear weapons. In a word, North Korea wants to remove America's nuclear umbrella officially from us Korean Peninsula. But according to U.S. nuclear strategy, the America cannot guarantee uh, not using nuclear weapons to a certain uh, area or country anyway. So American nuclear weapons is is universal. If there is any threat or whatever, yeah. the weapon can be used anywhere, anywhere any place, you know, whatever. So they want to shake the fundamental uh, strategy of America's nuclear policy. Do you think Kim Jong-un would ever use a nuclear weapon? If she uh, feels it is necessary. For instance, if he is pushed at the last corner and if he thinks that there is no way to save his life and his family, then I think there is nothing he may lose. Would he use it on South Korea? If she will not use it, then why he is so desperate of making nuclear weapons? Well, no, but there are, there are a number of different possible targets, right? There's South Korea, there's Japan, there's the United States. Do you think he would try to hit all three? Uh, I'm not quite sure whether Kim Jong-un is really uh, succeeded in ICBM, which is capable to target America. But uh, so far, I'm sure that North Korea has acquired the uh, nuclear weapons which can target South Korea and Japan. Do you think he wants unification? No, I don't think he knows that unification could be a big problem for him. So that's why he wants to keep North Co- isolated North Korea for his own sake. Does he want a confederation in which you can maintain two separate Koreas but with support from South Korea? No, North Korea knows quite well that the system of confederation would finally uh, lead to uh, a reunification by merging the two systems. So when they talk about unification, which they often do, it's just an empty slogan? It's just an empty slogan. To for the people? Yes. If you read the North Korea's party charter, it is clearly enshrined in that charter that Korea's reunification should be done under the banner of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. So the, the people of North Korea, are they fooled? Do they believe in unification? Oh, these days they don't believe, you know. They say about reunification, but they do not believe that kind of federation or confederation style. Nobody. 
So everyone's talking about it, but it means nothing. Yes. It's interesting. You said at the beginning of this interview that uh, Moon sh- President Moon of South Korea should not be fooled by Kim Jong-un's charm offensive. What do you mean, and do you think he is being fooled? I don't think President Moon Jae-in and South Korean government is fooled. Okay. Uh, South Korean government has its own strategy to solve its problem. President Moon Jae-in knows quite well that it is not an easy task to do denuclearization of North Korea and... South Korean government wants to bring Kim Jong-un safely to the room where President Trump is waiting. So let these two leaders meet and discuss the nuclear issues. That is uh, the current South Koreans' strategy. I know we're almost out of time here. You've been very generous today. Do you have any final quick advice for President Moon? I think these days a South Korean government is trying to say a very sensitive issues of CVID. Uh, in the last meeting, actually, I and people uh, waited whether President Moon Jae-in mm. mentioned about the CVID uh, to Kim Jong-un. And I think President Moon Jae-in and South Korean government should be more open and more honest and frank to Kim Jong-un. If South Korean government wants to avoid to discuss this kind of sensitive issues with uh, Kim Jong-un, then they cannot reach the final goal. So I think the dialogue must be frank and honest. If South Korean government wants the true denuclearization, they should open it and say openly and directly I want to advise President Trump that the denuclearization of North Korea is not a kind of, you know, personal uh, thing to President Trump because it is very uh, sensitive issue. So I want to advise President Trump to lend his ears more to his aides yeah. and advisors to not decide unilaterally by himself. And President Trump should not be motivated or should not be lured by a kind of, you know, Nobel Prize or whatever. President Trump should be practical uh, with North Korea and Kim Jong-un because North Korea uh, diplomacy is a very good act at deceiving, you see, the people. So President Trump should lend his ears to his advisors. And if anyone in North Korea is listening to this podcast, including maybe Ke- Chairman Kim Jong-un, what would you like to say to them? I would like to say to Kim Jong-un that the only way for North Korea and the Kim Jong-un family's prosperity yeah. is to give up the nuclear weapons and ICBMs and try to negotiate with South Korean America honestly. Okay, well, thank you very much to Mr. Taeyong Ho for being our in-studio guest today. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, and you've done your job. Don't forget to listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare. Listen to us next time.